Hey everyone, you're listening to Hot and Bothered, Cultivating Sustainable Resistance. Welcome to the show and thank you for tuning in. Today's show is titled, Growing Our Roots, Environmental Justice Founded in Abolition. This is our first episode ever and it is February. As such, we thought it would be necessary to kick off the show by addressing Black History Month and the roots of liberatory environmental justice. But first, let's get started by letting you get to know us a little bit better. So the title of the show is Hot and Bothered, Cultivating Sustainable Resistance. Because we are angry, We are concerned, we are very hot, and we want to explore the methods by which we are building a new future. We started Hot and Bothered because we're concerned youth staring the climate crisis in the face. We wanted to hear something covered on the radio that for some reason no one seems to be talking about or taking seriously. We aim to cover a broad range of topics related to environmental justice and climate change as they pertain to life in Columbus and the state of Ohio. Specifically, over the course of the next 12 months, we will hone in on the landscape of leftist politics and community organizing in central Ohio and discuss the implications that these subject areas have for the future of our Midwestern city as the climate crisis progresses. For us, the climate crisis is the product of a multitude of intersecting justice issues. Here, we will share workers' stories, organizers' challenges, and interview people involved in the intersecting racial, labor, and climate justice movements. Each show will balance hope and struggle with a deep delve into the theoretical backgrounds of our topic of the month, followed by an interview, a reflection period, and some brief calls to action that listeners can feel empowered to participate in. For this episode, though, you'll just get to hang out with us, your hosts, Vicki and Jordan. Lastly, we want to break down institutional barriers that historically have gatekept this knowledge. Our coverage of social theories, history, and the future will be discussed in a way that is accessible to all listeners. How does climate relate to the increasing severity of our local housing crisis? How does climate relate to our city's increasing demands for racial justice? How does it relate to abolition? How does it relate to queerness? How does it relate to mobility justice? And how does climate relate to literally every social issue we have ever grappled with? We're here to at least approach an answer to these questions, or maybe we'll leave with more questions, but either way, someone needs to be having this conversation. So we hope that you will stick with us to critically analyze these topics and join us in our daring endeavor to imagine a future that is radically different from the present. Howdy, y'all. I'm Jordan, and I use he, him pronouns. I'm 20 years old, but I've been all over the east side of central Ohio, and I'm excited to be here today. I've been concerned about my relations to the institutions around me for a long time. I spent my high school in three different districts while in and out of Franklin County Children's Services, landing in a family of neighborhood friends, which was lovely. But that really helped broaden my perspective as a teen and gave me an understanding of the lack of agency felt when being a ward of the state. 
Ever since I was young, I had loved school. Now I hated how it was ran. Everyone from my peers to the administration knew that. Yet I was always a curious little bugger, found it easy to break the rules, and just get by. Having an interest in STEM led me down an academic rabbit hole that was full of pandering adults and joyful adventures, till about my junior year of high school when I was finally confronted with having to monetize my passions and skills. Attending conferences and events held by tech and research companies, my friends and I began taking another look at who we would possibly be working for and what kind of work we would actually get done. As you can probably guess, a couple of kids with dreams of inventing technology that would expand our scientific boundaries, we were highly disappointed, heartbroken even. I personally had the aspirations of pursuing astrophysics since I was around 8 years old, yet this confrontation with reality definitely shifted my priorities. Taking a serious look at my options, I realized I didn't want to help billionaires colonize our solar system or get stuck doing pointless research. I then leaned on pursuing the arts and was on my way to study music composition until I realized I would go insane, insane offering my passions to such institutions, and I foresaw imminent burnout. I ended up going to C-State to finish my associates, and they just kept messing up my financial aid, and I wasn't paying full price during a pandemic. So about half a semester in, I dropped out, followed my international relations professor's advice. Read, read, read. <laughs> right, right, right. I dove headfirst into as many local projects as I could, but never found one where I felt I fit perfectly until I reached out to Mass, Mutual Aid Street Solidarity, a local anarchist collective that focuses on mutual aid and harm reduction for drug users. Working alongside Mass and learning how they autonomously organize community funds to distribute clean drug use supplies alongside food and hygiene resources, I was able to see how direct action was the foundation that we build our own liberation from. I know now my affinity came from the horizontal model of organization that is the foundation of anarchic political philosophy. While I still have many close affiliations with some organizations I joined at the beginning of my journey, like the local Sunrise Movement, one example of horizontal organization and practice, there's just something about explicitly anti-state activism that keeps me committed to a federation of community members. So here I am today with my comrade Vicky to help highlight the voices that have helped us be autonomous actors and influence revolutionary tactics and ideas against the state and its centers of influence. Hello, current and future friends. My name is Vicky. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm so excited to be on this journey with anyone who ends up listening to this series. I'm 26 years old. I still identify as a youth. We will see if that changes throughout this show, but I grew up in Ohio outside of Cleveland as a child of immigrants. I'm a Filipina Lebanese woman, and I've been living in Columbus for four years now as I work on my PhD in environmental social science at The Ohio State University, and I identify as an activist scholar. I am intimately involved in community organizing work here in central Ohio as I work on my dissertation project. I focus most of my organizing energy with the local chapter of the Sunrise Movement, aka Sunrise Columbus, but I'm working on a lot of things, including this show, and I love to bring people together into a space of radical imagination. My interest in hosting this show stems directly from my experiences and my passions. I come from a family in which hosting a friend and offering safety and shelter to others is part of our moral code. I've always loved to care for my community. And I didn't really realize how much that led to my radicalization until I was in my early 20s. 
Arriving in Columbus, I had a very romantic view of what graduate school was supposed to be for me. I was under the impression that I would be having late night coffee shop discussions about the revolution and the methods by which we get there. It was pretty naive and I soon learned that I was going to have to carve that space out for myself and for the communities that I really align with to experience the kind of stimulating environments I longed for. I've always been involved in community service here and there, but the second I committed to a local group and started organizing our community, I finally felt I was in the space that I needed. And since then, I've been honored and lucky to work with amazing people who want to share a space of radical imagination together. I have had a lot of access to knowledge that is guarded in the academy, and I want to share that with as many people as possible in a way that is accessible and motivating. My research is directly focused on environmental justice activism. I've also been on the ground in the central Ohio organizing landscape and have had the privilege of seeing the theories that I study manifest in physical practice. So I'm really interested in taking that hand in hand and moving towards a more complete understanding of our struggles and how we can achieve a just, equitable, anti-imperialist, anti-colonial, anti-patriarchal, anti-capitalist, fossil-free future for our region of this world. And I hope that while we work through putting the pieces together or unbraiding this tangled web, that we can catch glimpses of the future we want. So, Vicki, what kind of hardships do you think we're gonna be facing with this project? Like, what kind of political, social, or institutional barriers do you think we're gonna have to overcome, either aimed at the community at large, activists or organizers alike? Yeah, I think that's a very valid question because we're going to be talking about things that are not super popular with a lot of people, um, although I think are becoming more popular every day. So that's cool. Um, on like the most basic level, I think we're going to probably run into some like outreach problems, like getting our message out there, especially because this is like a grassroots project and we don't have the kind of corporate budget that other shows might have to reach a wider audience, um, especially because we've talked about we will never take corporate sponsors. Um, so that's one thing that we're going to face for sure. But like also there are hardships for us involved in like personally keeping hope alive. I mean, it will be kept alive. There is no alternative. But... I do think we are going to be addressing a lot of really important issues over the next year that may be discouraging to like research, but we're going to keep that hope alive the entire time. So I think that's a barrier that we will overcome for sure. And I also think we're going to have to continuously revise how we make this show accessible. So like the longer we talk about theories, the longer we talk about um, history, like it can get complicated pretty fast. So I hope that we can make that a priority so that it's engaging and that it's accessible and it's understandable. But one thing I think that we will face an actual, I don't know if I would call it a barrier, like a challenge, is that each of these shows we want to close out with doing calls to action. Right. So there will probably be hardships associated with like any opposition that we face during production. 
of this show from people who do not agree with us, of which there are many people <laughs> that don't agree with us. So we're going to be asking, or rather just informing listeners of things that you can do in your life here in Columbus, Ohio, to really support radical movement organizing. And that's a threat to many institutions. So I think that's a big barrier that we're going to have to overcome. Um, but that just means that we're doing our jobs and we're doing good work. So I'm excited for the challenges, for us to face those challenges and overcome them and build a, a more organized movement. Okay, I have a question for you, Jordan. Shoot. My question is, what do you think it means for us as the hosts of this show to be here right now on the airwaves recording this show? Like, what is the significance of us materializing our thoughts here in the way that we are hoping to? I think it's vital. I mean, looking at the historical context of past struggles, we are past time to save the earth. We are at the point where we need to be looking at mitigation and protecting our communities and especially the most marginalized members. And that means being disruptive to the powers that you mentioned that be at every chance we can. Uh, it's like important for us to be taking the on the ground experiences that we have as organizers and community members in general and growing those networks horizontally and to make sure that we're not punching down when we're looking for members or when we're critiquing the communities that we're in. Because this movement for a sustainable future needs sustainable activity going on it. And if we weren't here with our hope and our passion, there is no guarantee that there would be a future. Yes. I kind of, I love it. I mean, I'm not, you know, we're not like saving the world, but we're, we're laying a foundation for sure. Okay, so Jordan is going to lead us into this section telling us all about abolition. So Jordan, go off. Tell us all about abolition. What is it? What does it mean? Uh, well, first I'll start with the George Floyd rebellions of 2020. Um, that put the topic of police abolition into a lot of minds of youth around the world. Autonomous actions taken during that summer helped forge networks between people who have been struggling against police brutality for years and those who don't see a future or a sustainable future, especially in the status quo. Simply put, abolition is the process of putting an end to an institution or practice. My use of the term abolition is rooted in the black autonomy tradition that grew out of the settler colonial slave diaspora. By settler colonial slave diaspora, I'm specifically talking about the extraction of indigenous people from Africa due to the slave trade, being forcefully placed in the Americas and forced to do labor that benefited colonists settling in Native American lands. Most repeated historical conceptions of abolition come from the call to end the disenfranchisement of black labor and put an end to slavery. But the on-the-ground call for abolition was aimed at the white supremacist society and political movement as a whole. The war against white supremacy hasn't ended. We continue to see indigenous peoples and cultures genocided, POC and queer bodies harassed, killed, and thrown away. Generations before us understood that surviving in the United States meant forced assimilation. For children born into the diaspora, some of us have seen our own parents' attitudes and self-determination falter and crumble before our youths. 
With the concept of police abolition gaining traction, it was just a matter of time that that tactic of abolition was applied to all oppressive forces that plague us. Prison abolitionists, both in and out of detention, have been calling for us to collectively address the police's role in the continuation of slavery in our penal system. The abolition of ICE detention centers, jails, and prisons in action means dissolving our current institutions of detention, making collective space for networks of care and rehabilitation. That logic extends to the point of contact community members have with the law, where most civil liberties are broken and go unreported and uncorroborated. It's important for me to note institutions at this scale of the police and detention centers are not just dissolved but dismantled from the bottom up by autonomous actors. But while pursuing an end to all state-sanctioned violence, more than anything, we must be working in a way that makes institutions unnecessary. It's vital we are building our own collective systems of liberation. These actions and networks that support them are formed outside the state in an explicit move to build power. By investing in these systems of dual power, we gain the capacity to create new social institutions that are founded on community care. We must be confronting the on-the-ground struggle that our current economic model demands us to engage in. And by current economic model, do you mean capitalism? Absolutely. The conditions that a capitalist economic system demands are just plain unsustainable. Having rigid hierarchies and theorized unlimited value growth makes it almost impossible for those with capital in the 21st century not to perpetuate the patterns of centralized accumulation and unsustainable land stewardship. Centuries of colonialism and racist economics and social policies have privileged certain classes and social milieus with the capability to accumulate capital and structure their methods of economic growth before most of us have had a chance to engage. But if we want to champion sustainable communities and lifestyles, we need to escape the rat race. We must consider our soft and hard power as community members to better our own conditions, breaking down the walls that suffocate us. The new political and social institutions we create will determine how we facilitate this trade and management of wealth and clout. For this reason, we have to have these discussions and create new economic models and theories. Yeah. The current economic models would not seem so permanent if not for the state's relentless efforts to protect them through modern state institutions, such as the police, the military, the Department of the Interior, and the National Endowment for Alleged Democracy, which, if you are not familiar with, you should check out the Congressional Dish episode about it because it's really good and it'll blow your mind. But anyway, back to abolition. Abolitionist autonomous actions are the catalyst for our collective imagination for liberatory politics. A lot more people are waking up to the role of economics in our political lives and, more importantly, swallowing the pill that the personal is political. When we choose to allow multi-unit housing to go empty for months because landowners want to exploit land as a capital asset, we're going against the vital substrate of all existence, negating the fact that we belong to the land, not the other way around. When we contextualize how the police function to secure the neoliberal and colonial attitudes of the state, we are explicitly subverting the state's ability to demonstrate its soft power over our psyche. But to continue our struggle against the prison industrial complex and military industrial complex, we must come together against all forms of domination. Our struggle for a sustainable future has no border, no matter how many billions of dollars nation states will spend in attempt after attempt to legitimize them.
the ecological crisis we're experiencing doesn't care about profit, and neither can the collective institutions of our future. As William C. Anderson said in his book, The Nation on No Map, Black Anarchism and Abolition, quote, as I confront ideas about nation building and or trying to use or reform state power, I ultimately want to encourage others to take abolition and apply it to borders, nations, and states, end quote. They go on by, quote, envisioning a nation that doesn't need to be a nation and that doesn't need to be on a map because it knows borders, states, and boundaries cannot accommodate the complexities of our struggle, end quote. We have been barely surviving for too long and we're running out of earth to fight over. It's vital we fight in ways that aren't reproducing oppressive structures. Our means must be justified in their own right to create a sustainable and just ends. In modern analysis of an anarchic thought, video essay Daniel defines, quote, Anarchy is both individual and collective freedom to develop our full creative capacities, constituted through equality of structural power and the eternal principle of human solidarity. Such a society is not then a state of unrest, but the condition of existence in which humanity can determine for themselves what sort of future they wish to inhabit. Free of direction from some dominator class, instead carried forth by their own motivated wills. If this society has been explained to you as a state of chaos, understand that only your rulers wish for you to think that a society without domination, a society in which you are in control, has chaos. End quote. Now sit with that for a second. If you can perhaps think that, sure, if I was in control, maybe I wouldn't do so well for that long, or maybe not at all. But understand that line of thinking applies to our current system, one where you have the capacity to accumulate power or signifiers of power, capital, money, and only you. That is what we are attempting to escape. What we posit through anarchic frameworks is creating dynamic social conditions where the checks and balances of our political governing systems can be self-sustaining, not in a passive way in which we tout the party line or mass line to uphold the status quo, but one that is legitimized through the constant and active participation in societal efforts. We're coming together to increase the capacity of everyone on this earth to have an impact on their material conditions. So, if upending white supremacist political institutions in their entirety means we must abolish our contemporary political governing structures, so it goes. Hopefully, over the course of our time together, discussing and acting out our future, we can forge a unity and an understanding that knows of such liberation. And I love that we get to have this conversation so early on and setting the foundation of our time in this show because we really do need to be thinking very broadly about what abolition entails. Like most people just think it means to get rid of prisons, but the ideology is so much deeper than only disappearing one of the many facets of this huge system that works to oppress us. And I also love the quote that you use because it demonstrates that what many people have been taught about an anarchic society is that it means chaos. But that's not what it means at all. It's just something that we've been taught. I think the most harmful taught is that this is not chaos that we are currently living yes. in. And that we have some sort of order with our current political yes. institutions. But we don't. We have the illusion of order born through complicity. Yes. So that's a little primer on abolition. But now we're going to shift to talk about environmental justice. So why is abolition foundational in our discussion of environmental justice? Um, in America, I think it's vital because we 
talk a lot about freedom and liberty without defining why or how we liberate ourselves, and it leaves a lot of us questioning just how free we are. When our food and energy supplies are being disrupted and devastated by corporate interests, how can we claim liberty? The lack of community ownership and input coupled with the erasure of native knowledge and sovereignty, which has left our soil damaged and has had demonstrable effects on our mental and physical well-being, how can we preach freedom? When communities suffering from decades of old racist zoning codes and regulations are forced to compound the stress on our youth by explaining carefully how to engage with law enforcement, because any engagement could lead to a loss of life or mobility, we must be centering discussions of actions with felt impact in our community. There are so many intersectional oppressive forces that the previous colonial leaders have left for future generations to handle and it's becoming more than apparent that those who have been hanging on to that colonial institutional power have no will to put in the work of changing it. With those oppressive forces working overtime on our marginalized communities, we need to be increasing the capacity for self and communal sufficiency. So we can't talk about environmental justice or liberty without first talking about abolition. Thank you so much. So next, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the environmental justice movement and where did it come from and where's it going? This is a climate justice podcast, right? So we have to talk about this first episode. And according to most scholars in the environmental justice literature and specifically Dr. Robert Bullard, who's often referred to as like one of the founding scholars in this field, environmental justice or EJ is the principle that all people and communities are entitled to equal protection under environmental health laws and regulations. And this is the same kind of definition that's been adopted by the US Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. Um, an expanded definition of this would include the right to not be exposed to environmental harms or toxins. And this is a right extended to all humans, regardless of race, class, or other social identities that keep folks in the margins of our society. The environmental justice movement, however, did not begin by addressing the intersection of these and other areas of marginalization. The rise of the EJ movement was a result of the continued work in the civil rights movement and also the emergence of an anti-toxic movement in the United States in the early 1970s. So in the beginning, a lot of environmental justice demonstrations were focused on exposure to toxic pollution. For example, one of the critical events, which is highly regarded as the starting point of the U.S. EJ movement, was the Warren County, North Carolina protest in 1982. In Warren County, there had been a proposal to create a dump site for PCB-contaminated soil. PCBs are polychlorinated biphenyls which are industrial products or chemicals that have been shown to be very harmful to human and environmental health. PCBs were banned in the U.S. in the late 1970s, and the producers of these chemicals had to get rid of them somewhere. So it seems they started dumping them on poor, often black communities with low amounts of political power, like Warren County. This resulted in the residents and supporting communities mobilizing against this proposal, which brought in national media attention and also resulted in over 500 arrests and civil disobedience. 
Here's a clip from the site of the protest where the announcer describes nonviolent protesters forming a blockade against the dump trucks as they try to cross the road into the proposed PCB dump site. We will not allow one county to become a dump site. The State Highway Patrol began moving in on the marchers as they approached the entrance to the state landfill. The signs and chants of the protesters made clear their opposition to having the toxic chemical buried in their county. I don't want this stuff thrown in my water. We're marching because we do not want this to affect our future. If you do not cease this unlawful act, you will be arrested. The leaders of the protest said they would not move, and they were the first arrested. As they were being escorted away, the crowd moved in on the entrance. Many of the marchers then sat in the road, and the patrol began arresting them and placing them on a jail bus. We were hoping that we were going to have, of course, just the protest, but uh, you witnessed the fact that there was a an attempt to obstruct, which we simply could not uh, allow to continue. We feel very confident that we built a facility that uh, is going to work uh, the way in which it was intended, and uh, we intend to just carry this project out to its completion. So in 2012, residents from Warren County actually acquired a historical marker for this site and held an anniversary celebration in which Reverend Ben Chavez, who was principally involved in organizing this protest, was present to give a speech addressing the significance of this moment in history, which included a forewarning. PCB is polychlorinated biphenyl, one of the most carcinogenic, one of the most cancer-causing substances ever produced by man. Mm. It's man-made. Mm -hmm. It's a residue. It's a runoff. It's a byproduct. Uh -huh. It's something wrong mm. with concentrating PCB, even in the best scientific landfill. Mm. All landfills eventually leak. Thank God it has been detoxified. But we still have to raise the question, why the toxification in the first place? Why? We can't have amnesia here. Mm -hmm. There are forces in our society right today that want to take our society backward. Backward. They want to go to the days of segregation. Mm -hmm. They want to go to the days of inequity and injustice. People want to blame poor people for being poor. Lord help. From here, the first EJ-focused social study was conducted in 1983 by the U.S. General Accounting Office to investigate the racial demography of communities near toxic waste sites in the South. The results of the study found that three out of the five most toxic commercial hazardous waste sites in the U.S. are located in neighborhoods where Black and Latinx residents are a majority of the resident population. This led to the eventual publishing of the famous 1987 United Church of Christ study titled Toxic Waste and Race in the United States, which was the first nationally conducted study to confirm that above considerations of class, 
Racial identity was the most significant factor predicting resident proximity to waste sites producing harmful toxic pollution. So it's saying, if you are a minority in this country, you are extremely more likely to be living near a toxic waste site than a white person. Reverend Ben Chavez, who we just heard that speech from, was actually one of the directors of the famous UCC study. And 20 years later, in 2007, a new report was published titled Toxic Waste and Race at 20, which addressed the continued presence of disproportionate exposure to toxic waste by the poor and specifically by black communities in the U.S. The report states, quote, It is ironic that 20 years after the original Toxic Waste and Race report, Many of our communities not only face the same problems they did back then, but now they face new ones because of government cutbacks in enforcement, weakening health protection, and dismantling the environmental justice regulatory apparatus. Our new report, Toxic Waste and Race at 20, again signals clear evidence of racism where toxic waste sites are located and the way the government responds to toxic contamination emergencies in people of color communities." End quote. Off of this momentum from the Warren County protests and the UCC study, EJ formed a more coherent movement in the late 1980s, which continues today. Now today, we do not only see the addressing of toxic waste, but we also see EJ focusing on food insecurity, long-term community health outcomes, infant mortality, mobility, housing security, proximity to natural disasters, proximity to mining areas, runoff, and so many more topics, which we will get into in depth in this show. Now, some environmentalists consider EJ to be a contentious topic because some mainstream environmentalists do not think that justice, social justice, is necessary to achieve a fossil-free future, an end or at least survival through the climate crisis, or any sustainable lifestyles. We wholeheartedly disagree with this assumption. We think that social justice has to be at the center of any conversation about environmental justice because only by abolishing the institutions that are hurting our communities can we build more sustainable futures for ourselves and the more than human world. In the past, too, there was quite a lot of pushback in the beginning of the EJ movement about race being the most deterministic factor of proximity to pollution, with many scholars in and outside of academia claiming that actually class was the determining factor of proximity to toxic pollution. There was also this whole chicken or egg debate about if industries were siting their waste sites in existing black and people of color communities or if POC were later moving to those areas because of a lower cost of living. Which, as a side note, indigenous communities were being attacked this entire time, but the scholarship didn't really pick up on that for years. So it was really focused on this chicken or egg debate and the race or class debate. These claims against race as a factor have been largely refuted today, but it is still brought up from time to time. Many scholars have published a variety of different quantitative studies that use different geographic data points to calculate the significance of impact of race or class on exposure to show that even with different methods, race is still the biggest factor. Mostly, I think I would consider the debate to be settled. There's just too much evidence pointing to the fact that regardless of class, being a member of a racially marginalized group puts you at greater risk of being exposed to life-altering toxic pollution. And I think that 
we as community organizers intimately involved in this work can attest to that. I think the inclusion of justice in environmental organizing is actually changing really fast in today's mainstream environmental movement. But you have to remember the beginning of the movement, this was the 80s and early 90s, and honestly, most of the early 2000s as well. I mean, there's a clear lack of understanding of intersectionality in all of those arguments from back then. Even as Black, Indigenous, and POC scholars who are the founders of this field of study consistently made strong arguments that while class is a factor, race outweighs class, the majority of social scientists at the time refuted the claims. But today, if you look at the propaganda being pumped out of the big tent of mainstream environmental organizations like the Sierra Club, the National Wildlife Federation, Greenpeace, even the National Park Service, they're going through this weird rebranding where suddenly it seems like at least they're aware of the need for justice in the environmental movement. I mean, what does that mean for us, people on the ground? Like, what kind of structural or interpersonal challenges are formed or need to be confronted when mass organizations with money and clout are playing catch-up? Yeah, it's really interesting because you and I, Jordan, we have trust issues, right? Like, I don't trust the National Park Service to actually address justice issues. I'll be extremely surprised if they did in any significant way. And even then, I would be kind of skeptical. But I think what it could mean in the immediate and material future is money. Money being moved out of the hands of these large institutions, which have historically not reinvested their funds into actual grassroots efforts. We may actually see that money. Um, and it'll be up to us as locals on the ground to assess what's the most sustainable use for those resources as they come in. Because once they realize that the justice movement would threaten their ability to make money off of nature or politics or whatever it is, the money will probably stop coming in. The same with once they realize that including justice in the environmental movement will destroy the mainstream environmental movement that might fall out of the narrative as well. Um, and in terms of relationships with those organizations, I would say that as long as there is no formal obligation to provide or do anything in order to access those resources, it could be really beneficial to smaller groups because once you enter into formal agreements about like this money will be used to accomplish this goal, you have to publish a report on it. You have to reapply for these grants to ensure you can keep your organization alive forever and ever. Then the grassroots organization has been captured. And this is the perfect segue to going back and addressing what environmental justice has to do with abolition, why we're talking about it today. For one, environmental justice and the climate crisis are two topics that we will discuss at length throughout the show. And we cannot talk about those topics without grounding ourselves in the principles of abolition and liberation. As Jordan mentioned earlier, abolition in general is the ending of an institution or practice. And most commonly in the United States, abolition is discussed in reference to the prison industrial complex. But there's much to be said about abolishing other violent institutions, which we would define as institutions that can exert physical or psychological violence against individuals and communities in an effort to force social control onto those communities and benefit the institution. Usually, this looks like the state or the private sector or their offspring screwing people to make a profit 
This is broad and it would include many of the institutions and their extensions that we often find ourselves operating within, such as any of our governmental institutions, detention centers, even public schools, and yes, our economic system of capitalism. In order to achieve environmental justice, which is both a process and an outcome, we need to live free from harm of toxic waste with access to the material resources needed to survive, while assuming a mutually beneficial stewardship with a natural world. It will require the abolition of many things, including the abolition of fossil fuel extraction, which means the abolition of capitalism and the processes that protect it to achieve this goal. I love to hear that, because to actively fight for land stewardship starts with questioning the roots of our aforementioned trust issues. In our current position, we cannot afford toxic cleanup when conglomerates and subsidiaries have no budget for aftercare, ravage the well-being of our bioregion to exploit the resources and labor. We lack community-based investment programs that are purely focused on redeveloping a built world to meet the ever-expanding needs of our community members. If you consider our municipal agencies who are kept in lockstep by local capitalists and landowner-owned NGOs and staff, the political body that is up to the task, then we have a lot of work to do. And that's why we're here. The prevalence of these moneyed interests and the mindset they impose upon the public makes it hard to remember that opportunities for change are not locked up in a building in City Hall. As corny as it sounds, we all have the power to stop injustices in their tracks. The access to information in the last 30 years alone has changed how generations have grown to adapt and conform to conditions they have been born into. We are a part of a social revolution around the world that has been going on before any colonial boats hit any shore. One that pertains to sustaining our ecosystems, not in a way that preserves what works, but in a way that helps us adapt without asserting domination over our ecology. So like we mentioned in the beginning, we are staring the climate crisis in the face. There are millions of climate refugees worldwide already. The wildfire season keeps extending. Growing seasons are changing. Floods are increasing in severity. There have been a ridiculous amount of devastating hurricanes even in the last season alone. We've seen snow maybe four times in the 2021-2022 Ohio winter. And yet we still like to pretend that we're not going to feel these effects in the Midwest. This is simply not true. Lake Erie is already suffering from severe algal blooms and our climate is changing in a way that's forcing native plants in our region to move north. We're experiencing heat waves and increased rainfall every year. The crisis is here and now. And we need to get ready for that. We need to organize our communities because we know that the state will not protect us as long as it is rooted in protecting white supremacy, settler colonialism, and global neoliberal capitalism. But not only that. Yes, the crisis is here. But here in Columbus in Ohio, we are in a pretty strategic location to deal with the impacts of the climate crisis. We don't live in a natural disaster corridor like our comrades in the southern U.S. or on the coasts. If we can protect them, we have the protection of the Great Lakes in return. So more than anything else, we need to plan for the future in which we are at the geographic heart of the battle against the crisis in the U.S. People will move here from regions of the world more prone to disaster, and they already are. 
Columbus is poised to be a really important physical place in the next 10, 20, and 30 years. So as we gear up and organize our communities, we need to be constantly evaluating ourselves. We are the future. How do we manifest our imaginations into physical reality? We need to support land back and indigenous sovereignty. We need to support the Black Lives Matter movement. We need to support reproductive rights. We need to plan ahead. We need to stop being so reactionary and provide social infrastructure for our communities. That's what it means to cultivate sustainable resistance. And we believe we can do that. We just need to start. The truth of the matter is, we are in no position to continue the use of colonial ethics, social status, or financial status as a way to deem someone's worthiness for necessary resources. It all comes back to land stewardship and who our society deems fit to make those decisions. We cannot be scared of our innate power as human beings, but instead embrace it and how we can change our built world. When we collectivize our power, we can no longer be out-organized by moneyed interests. Sustainable social and political infrastructure is built through grassroots efforts, and our elders have been putting in the work for generation after generation, and against all odds. We have to be ready to grow from whatever calamity is tossed our way, to never conform around the nation state and its identity, but to carve out our own space and let it shine, to inspire and revitalize those who may feel like there isn't enough energy right now to make change. To understand the solutions to generational problems, we must be looking internally at how we perpetuate those because no one is 100% innocent. We all hold the guilt of complacency and that is born out of privilege and ignorance. Realizing this is not a prompt for mass paralyzation, but a call to action to each individual who wants change. We must actively change and build on the foundation we have inherited through our past struggles. Sustainable resistance is one of healthy community relations and active vulnerability to embrace hope. So if you're listening now and you feel the need to act and act now, you are the resistance. So stay strong. Following this foundation and abolition, in our next show, we will dive even further into the environmental and climate justice and the local and global landscape of the movement. The next show airs on the third Friday of the month, March 18th, 4 p.m. So we want to end every show with a call to action. This month, we want to highlight the ongoing struggle against police brutality. We want to shout out a group of community members working to shine a light on Casey Goodson Jr.'s story and truth in light of the upcoming trial against murderer Michael Jason Mead. Mead had shot Casey in the back six times as Casey was entering his house. Mead is just one example of how policing has been used as an instrument of terror because if not for the community outrage, I don't believe there would ever be a trial. Did I mention he was a sheriff's officer? So help the community members share Casey's truth to the people of Franklin County or your local region. More information can be found on the at Convict Mead, M-E-A-D-E, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and reach out if you want to get involved. We also want to be highlighting the case of James Williams, a father who was shot in his backyard by Canton PD after shooting his firearm in the air, celebrating New Year's Eve. The officers did not name themselves or engage in contact with Williams until after the shooting started. If you want to get involved in these ongoing struggles, you can find more updates on the Facebook pages of Consistency Speaks and Persistent Media. Back to Hope. Here's a clip from Dr. Cornell West 
closing out our first episode. But I want to end on the blue note. You can see I'm not optimistic. <laughs> I don't believe in optimism. I don't believe in pessimism. Black folks saying I've been down so long that down don't worry me no more, but I'll keep struggling anyway. That is not an optimistic statement nor a pessimistic statement. It's neither sentimental nor cynical. It's an expression of hope, and hope is not the same thing as optimism. Never confuse or conflate hope with optimism. Hope cuts against the grain. Hope is participatory. It's an agent in the world. Optimism looks at the evidence and see whether it allows us to infer that we can do X or Y. Hope says, I don't give a damn, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. You just listened to the first episode of Hot and Bothered, Cultivating Sustainable Resistance. We would like to take a moment to acknowledge the folks and organizations who have worked on and inspired the production of this episode. Thank you to Jordan Mays, Vicki Abergaliam, Marissa Twig, Sam Holman-Smith, Jacqueline Fleming, and Cooper Duvall. And another shout out to Mutual Aid Street Solidarity, which is at Mass Ohio, Sunrise Columbus, at Sunrise Columbus, Convict Murderer Mead, at Convict Mead, Tamala Payne, Casey's mother, at Miss T. Payne, and elders in the environmental justice movement, such as Dr. Robert Bullard, Reverend Ben Chavez, Dr. Cornel West, and others who we will mention in a future episode. Last thing, we are on Patreon. <laughs> if you would like to support our efforts to produce this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash hotbotheredohio. This is all volunteer work, so send us funds if you have the capacity. Okay, bye. See you next time. Bye. Adios, amigos. <laughs>